Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Full Chat, the weekly F1 news and discussion show that's sure to have the experts pouring over it. Because from the renders, you can see how we took inspiration from other podcasts in several key areas, but we're bound to look different by the first test anyway. I'm Brad Philpott, and as always, I've done my best to filter through this week's busy motorsport news cycle for the best winter F1 content. We want you to add your views and join in the discussion on our live YouTube chat. We run a Twitter space during our recording, but we totally neglect the listeners on that platform. So if you're one of them, search Full Chat F1 on YouTube and get involved in the chatting. Remember, any super chat questions get a guaranteed answer, but even if you're a cheapskate and don't pay us money, we'll probably answer you anyway. Tonight, we discuss the new cars that have been revealed since last week with Williams, Haas, Alpha Tauri, McLaren, Aston Martin and Ferrari all taking the wraps off their real 2023 challenges. Plus, the rumours from Silverstone that Aston Martin have created a beast this year that could even challenge for the title. In History with Alex and Brad, we take a look back at the F1 season that nobody wanted to win. And as usual, we answer your questions in real time as you send them in. Joining me, as always, a former semi-decent kart racer who's taken inspiration from the 2023 F1 designs and is sporting some interesting bulges under his bodywork this season, my co-host and best mate, Alex Mancini. How's it going, Alex? After my amazing intro... Open the show with fat shaming. Thanks. <laughs> really appreciate I'm sorry. that one. Alex, um, I'm sorry. Yes, no, that's fine. Bastard. I thought that was quite good. That one was quite spontaneous. It didn't even take me long to think of it. I was just reading some <laughs> testing analysis and I saw that phrase and I thought that describes my co-host. Every single week I think what you're going to say and it's always worse than I can ever possibly imagine, you bastard. But oh well. I'm, I'm really sorry. Also joining us tonight is an expert engineer and BBC Radio Cambridge F1 analyst and a very close friend of the show, Carl Power. Welcome back, Carl. Hey, Brad. Thanks for that nice and not fat shaming intro for me. <laughs> I'm nice to our guests. I'm yeah. just mean to Alex. Well, apart from Danny. but <laughs> just... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was mean about Danny as well. I'm nice to you then. 
I just want to defend Alex a little bit because I'm suffering in that way a little bit. Like the Mercedes bump that they had on the thing last year was called a blister. So we're just suffering from love blisters. That's all they are, <laughs> love blisters. Exactly. And I'm sure there are all sorts of funny words that we're going to learn about new features we find on this year's F1 cars. Uh, before we get going, a quick reminder, if you're joining us on the Twitter space, you won't hear the music or the bumpers. So if you want to get involved in the chat and see what we look like and have no weird gaps and silences between the topics, head to YouTube. The link is on my Twitter profile or just search for Full Chat F1. So what have you been up to this week, Alex? Um, what have I been up to this week? I've given up on Age of Empires. Um, oh, no. I've, I've, already, I've already deleted it. I, I just can't get on with it. It's too boring for me. Um, I've taken up flying again in my F-18 on DCS, which is awesome. I've spent a lot of time dicking about with VR settings, more so than actually playing games. Um and it's half term, so I'm hiding in my office while while trying to get out of the house when customers don't cancel meetings on me. Okay, nice. And Kyle, have you been enjoying the launch season so far? Kind of, yeah, but probably for all the sort sort of wrong reasons, really. Like, uh, I kind of get a bit bemused at this time of year, which I'm sure we'll um, talk about. But and sort of people just launching liveries, some people launching cars, and a load of dodgy analysis going on. But the one thing that's really getting me is the amount of dust attached to this shirt because i've dug it out of a bag which has been sitting there for about a decade and a half and haven't washed it put it on tonight for like a joke and i'm now itching really badly so kyle says this is a joke but really he is an absolute massive member of the tifosi he's a huge ferrari <laughs> fan especially from the 90s and that is a topic we're going to be getting on to a little bit later today kyle has specially prepared for us um, a segment towards the end of the show. So looking forward to that, taking us back to our youth. Um, we should probably talk about some of the specifics this week. So I'm going to remember to press the bumpers this week. Here we go. And so our first proper topic is that we saw a bunch of new F1 cars this week. So I listed them in the intro. We had Haas come out and show us their real car, which had some interesting features. Um, we saw Williams do a livery launch initially, and then ultimately they've shown us their real car. Alpha Tauri showed us the real car at, in New York Fashion Week and some renders, and I don't know quite how much we can read into that. And later on in the week, we had a couple more exciting ones. But let's talk about those first ones, the kind of lower down the field cars so far. Um, what did what did we think about, I guess, the launches, if we watched them? I didn't really sit and watch anything other than the Alfa Romeo one, which was last week. Um, Haas, I, can't, I don't even know how they launched there. So they just released some images online. I think they were quite open. The Haas one was a few weeks. There was, there was a couple, Haas one was the first one. Haas was a livery launch initially, but this week they've shown us the real car. So oh, seen... oh, for me, that's blended into one because and... that car's monochrome and I don't care. And this is the problem when teams are doing separate season launches, livery launches, and, and like these different kind of things. You're not quite sure what you're looking at unless you're really paying close attention. Yeah, we also had the Red Bull well, launch, livery launch, which was like a big drab affair. I think I lasted 20 seconds of it. And I'm just like, it's going to be exactly the same. <laughs> well, not for me. <laughs> so yeah, but, um... Red Red Bull were another one that, that didn't do a proper launch. So they're on my list of cars we've yet to see. So there are there are two cars we still haven't seen at all, um, and that is the Red Bull and the Mercedes. Oh, and the Alpine 
we have seen some photos of. So I guess we can touch upon that as well. The official launch of the Alpine is tomorrow, but we've already seen, I say we, you might not have if you're listening to this or, or watching it on YouTube, but we have had available to us some high res photos of the Alpine. I believe it was at Silverstone doing a shakedown. Um, so we've seen in the flesh everything other than the Mercedes and the Red Bull now. Um, and so let's get back to these kind of low down the field cars. Haas, interesting design with the the kind of shark fin not attached. Carl, you're the technical one here. Did you did you notice that? Yeah, I saw somebody did a Photoshop of the um the the detached shark fin removed and it looked horrendous. It looked way too long. So I don't know why I don't know why they've got that. There's something going on there. But as we saw last year, um everything we're seeing and they're showing us the real cars, but on launches everything we're seeing was, is all likely to completely change by the time we get to, I think it's Bahrain, isn't it? The first sort of test. And it's only one test this year. Like Mercedes last year bought a completely different car to the second bit of testing. So we don't really know. So the Haas, too hard to tell. And I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of saying, oh yeah, that's going to create a better flow structure around the back, which will definitely prove them, you know, sort of sort them out on track. Cause I don't know what the hell I'm talking about in that yeah, sense. And, and although you're an engineer, you're not a formula one aerodynamicist no. and you're definitely in the camp car where you don't claim to, to know exactly what every piece on the car is for when it gets launched and try and draw conclusions, which I know you've taken issue with some armchair analysts uh, sorry, analysts doing their analysis without actually having the real information to back it up. Yeah, uh, a little bit. And it's just people in mainly on like... Call Reddit. them out. Name them, Kyle. <laughs> no, I'm not Name naming, their accounts. I know they have to go and do some like sort of content. And there are some really good accounts that like do some really good analysis, which is, yeah, you can sort of take a general sort of opinion on. But I was just found, I found, I found it hilarious when the pictures, I think it was the Sauber, I refuse to call it an alpha because it's a Sauber. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so basically like a Sauber, um, when they did the hedge cutter floor, which was clearly a fake floor and was not going to be the floor that they launched. And I saw all of I mean, these sort of armchair I, experts I going thought, crazy, trying to analyse it. And it's just I like, thought oh it might have been real. I, you I, you I, called I, it the anti-Verstappen floor last week. No, I, I stole that from our chat. So um, <laughs> someone in our chat mentioned that. Um, Danny Henney in our chat, a guest of the show, says um, that Red Bull have been spotted on track with no side pods, the rumour. It's, it's obviously a joke. That's not real. We've we've seen a terrible spy shot of the Red Bull. But the other thing has, that Danny in the chat says words. is wrong is he says that the Alpha Tauri was a really nice design. I think they've taken what was a really nice design and ruined it with, with red. And I don't often say red ruins things, but they've put red on in weird places because of the Olean sponsorship. And it looks ridiculous, and it's completely destroyed the whole flow of the entire livery. Right, so... we've we've you've hit upon something there that we can have an opinion on. So we can talk about whether or not we like the colours. So that is a thing which we're qualified to talk about because it's entirely our opinion. So let's not talk about the vortices and how cranked... Uh, that's a word I've learned from watching Kyle Engineers, by the way. So um, if anyone wants to look for a good... Um, aerodynamic analysis of the new cars as as well as you can analyze them without seeing the cfd or the wind tunnel numbers um search for kyle engineers on youtube and it's not our kyle who is an engineer it's a different account someone who used to be a mercedes formula one engineer uh, um, aerodynamicist um he uses the word crank anyway we we can't really talk about how cranked the surfaces are and what the vortices and the flow structures are, but we can say if the cars are pretty. I agree with you, Alex. The Alpha Tauri's red ruins it, doesn't it? 
Absolutely. Which is such a shame because it was a nice livery. It was something different as well, especially because it's fully matte and I don't like fully matte liveries. Um, the red's just in the wrong places and just doesn't go with the rest of it. The spoilers, lot, I love red. It's going to stand out though, isn't it, on the track? You're going to clearly be able to see it, whereas before it was kind of, it was a bit sort of stealth in a way. It was a bit too sort of dark. It's so going to stand I don't out mind with Yuki the throwing it into the scenery every single <laughs> opportunity. Well, quite a lot of the cars, though, don't you think, with all the carbon... So this is one of the trends. We can talk about some of the trends in just a moment, but one of those trends is lots of bare carbon with the weight saving still at the forefront of lots of the team's um, uh, design philosophies if they just can't get the cars down to the minimum weight. And the paint weighs quite a lot. If you've ever held a tin of paint, it, it weighs a significant amount. Um, lots of the cars are a combination of black, red... And some white. If you look at the the Alfa Romeo, sorry, car, the Sauber, um, we'll have to start calling them Audi soon as well. Um, <laughs> that is black and red with a bit of white. You've got the obviously the Ferrari is red, but with more black this year and white in areas that were black last year because the sponsor logos are on top of a black surface, so they've changed them to white to stand out more. So there's a couple. At Alpha least, Tauri. at least the Ferrari isn't brown. And they've gone back to a proper red. Yes. Okay. So um, we can move on to maybe the more interesting team. So none of us had anything to say about Haas, Williams, or um, what was the other? Oh, Alpha Tauri, really, apart from the, the colours. Um, so let's talk about the interesting ones. Ferrari launched today, Valentine's Day. Roses are red. Ferraris are red. And they're proper red this year. Because they were a mucky brown colour last year when you saw them in the flesh. Um, so that that was my key takeaway from the Ferrari launch. How about the, you, the, Carl? The great thing for me on the Ferrari launch was they actually put it on track. Yeah, that that was. We great. literally saw a video where it launched the car, and then all of a sudden you see Charlotte sitting in the track at Fiorano and blasts out on the track and does like three laps. Brilliant that, launch. That's where you do a launch, and then nothing much else happened, and it ended perfect. That's the benefit of having a test track next to the place where you want to launch the car. Isn't it? You know, if you've got your own yeah. test track. That's a that's a cool benefit for doing a, a fun launch. Yeah, and I definitely think that that wasn't the first time that that had gone out on track, clearly, because usually if it's a brand new car, they would do, Brad, you probably know, you've probably tested and done this, you would do an install lap very slowly and go around, pull the car in, pull all the covers off it, and immediately check if anything is leaking, that all the pressures are right before you go any further in case of damage. But he went straight out on track and seemed to pretty much nail it and then do sort of two, three laps and come in. So I think they'd run it before, but what a great concept, What an actual car launch and a livery launch yeah a proper launch and straight out on the track like they should all be like that i know mercedes are going to launch and then run the car at silverstone but that, that'd be great if they like launch it in the pit lane and then go straight out on track i think ferrari that, that was the only one worth watching in my opinion so i think that's a similar thing to what mercedes did last year they had a launch at the factory but their factory is is pretty near silverstone and i believe it then went and drove on track that afternoon but the ferrari one was a different thing altogether wasn't it because you had like a grandstand of fans there ready to just watch it all happen right in front of them so that was a they did it well i think that's probably the best one yeah. so far the, um, sorry bro no, I, I was going to attempt to talk about some technical aspects that I don't really understand. So I was just going to say... <laughs> I'm going to save you from that then. Go on. Um, funny enough, despite how much I'm going to rant about them later when we actually make up, when we have when we have a whole feature on them, the Aston Martin launch was actually really interesting. I listened back, I didn't get a chance to watch it live, but I listened back to it. They had, it, was, it wasn't long, but it wasn't short, but they had people on who had short, concise segments 
where they spoke about interesting things and then very quickly moved on. They had uh, Rachel Brooks and Crofty on, and they're always quite good at passing things around. They had a couple of kids on to talk, and they had Pedro De La Rosa. I didn't even know Pedro De La Rosa had gone back to Aston Martin, which was really interesting to see him there, and he bigs up both the drivers. Um, and obviously a little bit with their with their two... Um, um, with their two young drivers whose names have slipped my mind. Um, but yeah, overall, that was probably the second best launch out of everything and only because it didn't go on track instantly like the Ferrari did. And I'm going to pause you from talking about any more of the Aston Martin launch because we do have Aston Martin as a separate topic tonight because there's some juicy, potentially uh, interesting things coming out of there. So I can't wait for that. Of the other, yeah, it was, and Connor Edwards in the chat points out that the young drivers you were talking about were Felipe Drogovic and Jess Hawkins. Correct. Um, and the the other interesting launch that we've that's happened since we last spoke was the papaya orange McLaren, where it was interesting maybe for some reasons that they would rather it wasn't. So they had, a, a, you know, the launch itself absolutely fine, nothing nothing spectacular, nothing annoying or crazy or weird it was just you know we got to see the real car they didn't show us a pretend car or did they in a way so back to the this person i mentioned earlier on youtube kyle engineers he mentioned in his back-to-back analysis of last year's and this year's mclaren he couldn't see a whole lot of differences so this isn't me trying to analyze this because I honestly, I thought it, I thought, yeah, that's, that looks really different. You're ripping off Kyle engineers, basically. I, I was, I obviously don't know what I'm looking at. And he compared and showed photos. And I now agree that there's not a whole lot of difference when you look beyond delivery and a slight bit of um, upper side pod element curve. Um, it doesn't look that much different to last year. And they did a similar thing. The launch of the McLaren last year hid quite a lot of things and then when they got to testing although they had shown us a real car the car that arrived at the test as you guys have already pointed out was significantly different so it, this could be one of two things this could either be that they actually haven't developed much from last year and that maybe explains the absence of james key who i believe is either chief designer or technical director and i'm sure our chat will let us know what the answer is um or it means that they have developed it and they're just hiding it for a bit longer. There were some there were some obvious cover panels over certain areas of the floor which hid the real floor. Um, Kyle, which is it? Tell us. Uh, well, I don't know. One, why would they give away what they have? Two, they're probably, whatever they have, you know, it's sort of last minute and they're designing, so they're probably taking as much design time as they can, so they're probably well and truly still manufacturing it. And their point is going to waste resources manufacturing sort of blanks and dummies, which I was surprised that Mercedes did last year with their wavy quaver floor, which they did and then didn't then didn't win. But it was just and didn't win, didn't run. But also, um, it's not to try to protect their IP or their ideas from teams copying them and getting them on the car before the start of the season, because there's nowhere near enough time of that. It's just stopping them, giving them a head start and a direction to start looking in for for developing it and stealing their ideas. So of course, why would you why would you put your all your ideas out if you can whack like last year's panel onto it or just bodge something up really quickly to go over it you would that's exactly what i'd do so it's surprising that we see any of the cars in their actual sort of state of course something like the ferrari you know that's pretty you can see around their side pods it looks like they're committed in for that but they've gone a bit of a different way from all of the other teams similar to like mercedes as well so i think mclaren yeah probably will look quite different by the first test so are we saying that with this whole launch season in our in our view, there's a balance to be struck between 
showing us a real car and and not giving away too much like there's there's kind of a correct way to launch a car in the modern era we don't necessarily expect it to be definitely a a complete the full version of the car that's going to arrive at the first test or the first race but at the same time we would rather it wasn't we weren't lied to and told this is our new car when it's clearly just last year's car or an f1 show car painted this year's colors that that's that's well that's what i'm going to take away from it anyway i mean this whole thing i mean i, I it's funny where you talk about you know conning the fans or tricking the fans i would totally do what red bull did which is a blank canvas with a livery on it however i wouldn't have built it like red bull did because why do you want to put your cards on the table you know why do you want to give your opportunity your opposition the opportunity to copy your designs um but the interesting thing you talk about obviously the car will be different i mean they could put their complete iteration of what they currently have on show right now it ain't going to be the same by the time it gets to testing and when we had aston martin on we had their main guy whose name has slipped my mind mike um, crack no not mike crack the guy who i asked Ooh. you where he'd come from he's moved teams um Dan Fallows. Dan Fallows. Oh, that's that's the right. One. They had Dan Fallows on. He said two thirds of the by the end of the season, two thirds of the car will be different to what is launched, what is what is raced in the first race of the season. So that's why I'm not too bothered about what we're actually shown in these launches. I am purely looking at liveries. I think anyone who spends overly too much time looking at the tiny little new details is out of their mind and has nothing else to do. Right, well, we've had a super chat and I don't want to press the super chat button yet because it ties in well with our next topic. So super chatter, hold on just for one moment and we will get to you. I won't forget, I promise. Um, but just before then, and I know I said we aren't really the right people to analyse the designs in as a whole, but I think we can take some kind of view on the trends that we've seen so far. So although the caveat here is we know these aren't going to be the exact car that we're going to see later on in the season we can say that we've seen a kind of convergence towards the red bull of last year's um down washing where teams are trying to drive lots of air down the sidepods towards the rear wing and the floor and we've seen a bit more sculpting of the upper sidepods so i've heard it described as a water slide where if you were to literally pour water into the top of the side pods, ignoring the vents where it'll just go through the holes, <laughs> um, you'd, you could see the, the flow. You could see where that would go. And if you imagine air being attached to that surface, it would be, you can see where it's being directed. And last year, it was a bit more crude. Teams didn't seem to maximize that top surface. This year, pretty much every car I've seen, when you view it from the top, there's a kind of scoop in the upper side pod. Am I miles off? It, it, it's like that thing you used to have in McDonald's where you put a two pence piece in and it will go and spin round you could put a two pence piece at the top of those things and they'll just go straight down in, in the nice light way where you want them to that's exactly well, how they test it exactly so, so from what i've seen there's yeah most people you're right in saying is kind of adopting this red bull side pod and it looks a bit of a gurner the bottom sticks out more than the top so it looks like it's kind of gurning the side pod comes in and they do this sculpty sort of down ramp at the back much like 
the side pods in 2012 with the Coanda effect and the exhausts going down. But also Ferrari have kind of strayed away from that. And they're, and they're kind of sticking somewhat with their, what I call their tortellini side pod, because it looks like a tortellini if you look at it side, yes. side on. It's, and, it look, and it just happens, happens, so it happens to be that it's Italian. So, um, so they're sticking with this side pod. And some teams, you know, like the sort of alpha top, towering stuff have kind of looks like they've gone from an amalgamation of the two they've kind of gone in between they've got the high sculpted initial side pod and then this deep sort of sort of scoop out same thing with Haas but we know Haas are probably going to be more aligned to what Ferrari are doing because they'll get most of the Ferrari rear end mechanically onto their car so it makes sense to do a similar aero concept for them and now we're kind of expecting Mercedes to do completely something and to stick with their very much stick with their zero pod style so, Kyle, I'm so glad you said that and that you said that Ferrari have kind of stuck with their same um, philosophy as last year, which is where they've got the scoopy top of the side pod, but it doesn't then flow down anywhere. It seems to it seems to almost direct the air back upwards towards the rear wing rather than downwards towards the floor. So that's really the split we've seen is most teams having either a combination or very obviously downwashing or using the top of the engine cover as almost like a table which diverts air straight towards the rear wing, literally horizontally. Um, or we've seen um, like the Ferrari, like we're saying, you know, where it kind of it's just a scoop in the top, which is pretty much what they had last year. Yeah. But what we haven't seen is anyone go down remotely the Mercedes route. And the Ferrari scoop thing reminds me of what they used to do back in the mid-noughties when they're actually allowed big engine cover scoops to try to scoop the 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 air over the rear wheels. So the Ferrari almost looks like it's trying to flick the air up to the rear wing and get it out of the way of the rear wheels. So in the past, we would have had that done exactly, like you say, with things that were stuck on, like mm. kind of flip-ups that would, would have that same effect. But now they're not allowed to do that. They have to have a clean surface of the car to, you know, to keep the air flow um, nice and... Um, conducive to overtaking and for for other cars to follow um we've which, got to sorry, have these go for have a quick point which is what makes you have we discussed front wingy bits ah no we haven't got to that before so- we go away from front wingy bits the thing to also remember with regards to ferrari is last year they were the fastest qualifying car so that design and that concept they have has a lot of speed to it their biggest issue was tire wear so if they have managed to keep this fast philosophy and solve their tyre wear issue, they could be the right direction to go rather than the Red Bull, which was a bit slower in qualifying trim, but obviously outperformed them in the race because of its superior um, tyre wear. And I think there was some fuel management in there as well. Because we've also heard from Ferrari, and I don't know how much we can talk about this, and I want to ask Kyle a question on this, is we're hearing from Mercedes and from Ferrari that they're seeing double figures increase in horsepower. How can they do that when there's an engine freeze? Well, it's a bit odd. So they're allowed to make changes, actual physical changes, um, in the name of reliability. Now, Ferrari could have had the power on tap, and they did say this at the beginning of last year, that they'd sacrificed reliability just to go purely for performance, like Renault did a year or two ago as well. So Ferrari ended up having to back their engine off after their failures, so they already had the power on tap. So I believe Ferrari have made some changes that they can now unlock more performance. There was a figure of 30 horsepower thrown around, which I think is quite large, so you could probably take that with a pinch of salt, but they very may well have, yeah, they may well have found some via reliability. Now, Mercedes... Similar things, they could have been running their engine flat out, but also there's fuel partners here. So they can make the fuel 
a bit more efficient and the way it works with the engine better. So you could still potentially find some gains that way, but it's a bit of a gray area. I think Alpine were a bit unhappy saying that there's so many, they, they said there were so many applications for ditto marks, reliability changes from other manufacturers going into formula one. And they need to sort of watch this. Cause I don't think Alpine um, or Renault, Miss Renault have found much power at all because i think they've kind of more stayed into the spirit of the rules of only doing things for reliability and haven't done much whereas the other teams may have pushed it a little bit so you can work on the fuel and also you can kind of frig it saying you made your engine more reliable but i think in the ferrari cases they can just run their engine properly now so there we go we're saying that by just making it more reliable you can just push it harder and and therefore you've you've haven't actually fundamentally changed how much power you could have had last year it's just it would have blown up if you tried that's all it wouldn't have lasted long enough and in the chat lg h dodgma says um is that how you pronounce it i I don't know i have no idea that's how i'm pronouncing it regular contributor to the show lgh jotoma is is jotoma jotoma lgh jotoma anyway um has said that also mercedes may have been also struggling with this with the higher percentage in the synthetic fuel um, which is what Patronus was struggling with. And maybe, hopefully, they've got on top of that. The fuel is absolutely crucial. So remember back to 2014 and the the hybrids coming in for the first time, McLaren were a customer of Mercedes, but McLaren are also partnered with ExxonMobil, a mobile one for their oil and their lubricants. And they run the McLaren, the Mercedes engine using that. And it wasn't as powerful because the Mercedes engine was designed around running Patronus lubricants and fuel. McLaren actually lost out because they ran different lubricants. So there is quite a lot of performance in the actual fluids that the engine runs on. So we mentioned briefly a moment ago front wing slot gap separators. Am I talking rubbish? Carl? There was a there was a little minor controversy last year. I believe at the US Grand Prix, or hang on, which one? There were multiple. The it Austin, wasn't US. It was debuted at the US, and then yeah, then they wanted to run it in the race in Mexico, but weren't allowed. So basically, little carbon fiber um, front wing element separators on the Mercedes which they actually took off because although they, they got it approved by the FIA, they were worried that they'd be protested or it would be deemed illegal um, and they'd lose results. You know, If they won a race, it might be taken away from them, for example. So they took that away, and that was because the wording of the rules was that the primary purpose of these front-wing um, element separators I don't know what the real slot name is. Gap, slot, slot, gap, slot gap separator, I think, is correct. Actually. Okay, okay. So the primary purpose wasn't allowed to be aero. It had to be structural, and then a secondary purpose could be aero if you wanted. But that's a little bit hard to prove. It's difficult to prove whether or not you intended for it to be uh, an aero benefit first or whether it was a structural element first. Um, and so they took it off out of caution. This year, that wording's been removed from the rules. I read this on Autosport and Motorsport today. Um, so now the wording about primary purpose is gone. So provided that they do actually do the job of separating the front wing elements, as long as they actually are not just pretending to do that, um, then it doesn't matter if their primary purpose is for aero. And because of that, we saw them on the Ferrari. Um, See, I, I find this really, really strange and a really strange change because... The whole point of these aero regulations and what they were trying to avoid the teams doing was creating outwash to push the air outwards of the front wing and around the side of the car, which could make cause all sorts of problems for the car following. They were trying to avoid the teams doing this. Now, the teams have migrated towards this, as you can see, just by the general architecture of the front wing. They all mainly dip off at 
at the ends, right near the end plate. And you can see, you can actually visualize how the air, they're trying to put it outwards. So these slot gap, these slot, slot gap separators, basically, um, that's a mouthful. Um, you can clearly see what they're trying to do. They are trying to throw air outwards and create outwash. So I'm amazed that the FAA or Formula One has actually allowed this now because it goes completely against the spirit of the regulations that, that they're trying to uphold. And it just makes, it's just a bizarre, I don't know why they would do that. But spirit yeah. of the regulations just doesn't exist anymore. I know, but they're trying yeah. to make these things to, to stop them it, doing it, to make the racing better. So they're now allowing them to make the racing worse, technically, by creating outwash, which is, I, which is what I find weird. I think uh, the point Carl's making is that they've, they've changed the regulations to effectively make this definitely legal when mm. they could have done they could have gone the other way because everyone already thought it wasn't legal. So they could have just said, no, it's definitely not legal. And then they've avoided another little surface element on the car, which generates turbulence or outwash or whatever, all the things they're trying to avoid with this regulation set. So by codifying it as a thing you're allowed to do, they're just making the cars very slightly less good at racing and following each other closely. I think that's really, that's why it doesn't make a lot of sense. But then a lot of the things the FIA do don't make a lot of sense. So it's not surprising. <laughs> when was the last time the FIA ever made sense? That could well, be a feature all on its own. <laughs> I tell you what, let's, let's cover one of those points before we move on to our next topic. Because Ooh. the FIA did a thing which made sense this last week. Since we last were live on the show, I believe the moment we went off air... Um, uh, going to kill Mohammed, one of our features that we were going to work Mohammed on. Mohamed Ben-Slahem st- stepped back from running Formula One for the FIA on, on a day-to-day basis. And this has been covered um, at length on other podcasts and publications because it's been so there long. There aren't any other podcasts, Brad. Yeah, this is the you seem only to forget one this. You, you seem to forget to. this thing. Now that we're a podcast, there's no other podcast. We're the only ones that exist. Remember that. Well, anyway, up until last week, we seem to have a regular feature of what dumb shit did Mohammed Ben Salem <laughs> do this week that's brought the sport into disrepute or has pissed off the the long-term leaseholders of the sport, which are Liberty. Um, but he's he's been moved aside. And, uh, and so there we go. So unfortunately, we will lose that hilarious segment. Um, but I think for the good of the sport, it's probably a good thing. Although I did hear some pushback on the Missed Apex podcast from Matt Trumpets saying um, it was maybe potentially not such a good thing or the, the reasons behind it might not be quite so good. But there we go. So the FIA did some something correct. Yeah, well, to be honest, he's made a complete Horlicks of it, really, hasn't he? Since he's got in, he hasn't made too many friends apart from what it looks like with him probably slightly tipsy. Some, it looked it looked like he was tipsy. He may not have been on stage at like the awards, wasn't he? Looking like he's super chummy with Christian Horner. He's created controversy in just about every other statement that he's said. So I think for the FAA's sake, they had to kind of move him out of the way because the whole thing has been has been a well, well he's completely made a tits up of everything that he's done, pretty much. And so yeah, I feel a little bit sorry for him because of course he's getting a load of criticism here and there, but he has come across as dodgy. I mean, everything you see is just that's that's properly dodgy he's like the the unfortunate family relative that you don't really want to turn up to christmas because you're pretty sure they're going to say something outrageously racist or uncouth or something and you know it's coming and you're just like oh my god like like dominicali trying to shut him up on stage at that award ceremony you can see him it's like just stop talking benny like stop opening your mouth just to circle back very briefly to our previous little chat there about the front wings, Jay Starship in the chat says the FIA need to clarify because Merck literally used that explanation and was still banned. Uh, it doesn't make sense. I think the, the thing that has changed Jay Starship is that the explanation Merck will have used last year was the primary purpose of, these, uh, of this object on our front wing isn't aero. And the FIA will have said, well, 
it might be this year it doesn't matter so they the argument isn't the same because there is no need for it to have a primary purpose of structure so there we go that's different we've had a super chat a second one and we haven't actually addressed the first one yet but the second one was from new made so here's the here's the sound effect sorry twitter you can't hear this Oh, no one can hear it because my computer did a little thing. You, At some point in the show, you're going <laughs> to hear a sound effect that I pressed now. Oh, hang on. When I go back to the main screen, this is why I'm learning the technical side of things on, on OBS. There it is. You can only press the super chat button on the main screen. There we go. I know now. New Maid says there aren't any other podcasts. Hashtag the only podcast. Hashtag is definitely a podcast. I'll tell you what, should we move on to our first super chat question, um, which involves us moving on to the next topic? And again, for all the people on Twitter, that was just a random silence, but there was a video and a sound effect there that played. Um, our second super chat was from Deborah Hood, and she was asking, what amazing thing have Aston Martin found that is going to move them up the grid? So she saw on YouTube that Aston Martin had found some major pace. What have we heard about this? Alex, you watched the launch. I didn't watch the launch. I just looked at the photos afterwards. Um, <laughs> like so what is it? Tell me. Explain. Um, so... Uh, Lawrence Stroll came on and was talking very affectionately about all the money he spent on the wonderful new facility um, and everyone talking about how things are going to be amazing. But um, again, that guy whose name has completely slipped my mind again. Who was the tech guy? Oh, Fallows. Dan Fallows. Dan Fallows. So the thing that Dan Fallows was saying is at the moment they're working in like three different offices for design, which is never something you want when you want a cohesive unit. But when they move into the new building, they will have everybody under the same roof, in the same room, uh, able to have cohesive conversations, which for that kind of thing is something you really, really want. So lots of people have gone, oh, does that mean Aston Martin will be amazing this year? No, I don't think it does. I think what it means is Aston Martin are going to be much better off back end of this season and most importantly beginning of next season um but the other things we have had is fernando alonso has been very prolific in the in the press this week talking about his amazing super young teammate who has all the potential in the world to win championships yeah if everybody else retires um uh, and he's also been talking about the fact that he will struggle to get up to speed quickly with the car, um, and you will see, you you won't see him at his at his full magic Alonso best at the beginning of the season. For me, being the Alonso skeptic that I am, it's all bullshit. It is Alonso basically saying everyone else around me is amazing. I'm not going to be quite as amazing. So when I do do amazing, everybody thinks I'm amazing, um, and that's all it is. I, I don't believe Aston Martin are going to be knocking on the door of the top three this season. If they can fight with McLaren and Alpine, that would be absolutely awesome for the racing and the sport itself. Um, but I'm more counting down the days to when Fernando Alonso blows that team up. So you're telling me that Fernando Alonso has, has built up the prospects of his teammate in order to make himself look better when he ultimately beats him this season. Absolutely. 
So I think obviously it, it is that. It's a combination of that as well as um, the fact that he wants to endear himself to the team. You know, new team, he wants to get in with the boss, say nice things about uh, Lawrence Stroll's son. He's obviously going to like you more. So it just sounds like a sensible thing to do to me. I don't, Absolutely. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's a win-win-win for Alonso. And, 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 you know, he's got a track record of doing this, of 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 making, you know, I'm pretty sure his trip to Tesco's was probably the greatest ever at some point that he's done. He's got a habit of making himself, he's not shy of promoting himself, shall we say this way. You know, I think he's one of the only drivers who, when there's been a good good sort of article posted about him on Twitter or he gets his PR team, will then retweet it saying, look how great I am, you know, and stuff. So, so yeah, it's like a double win. His, like you say, he's saying Lance Stroll's amazing and he's going to be a fierce competitor and he's like potential future world champion so obviously invariably when i do beat him i'm just amazing and also it's it's yeah his scoring extra brownie points with with the boss you know i, I you know he's basically turning up with cakes on his first day isn't he <laughs> absolutely uh turning That's up with, good, a, bat, with, a, bat, with a with a with a with a battenberg and a, and a cherry bakewell um <laughs> the interesting one as well is we've actually already even in their car launch had the first bit of Let's say friendly needle between Lance and Alonso because oh, um, one of the they went to the audience and they asked a question. One of the one of the kids in the audience asked Lance who his idol was, and he said his idol was Michael Schumacher, and that during the two thousand and five and two thousand and six season he was cheering for Michael Schumacher. And for those that don't know, the other protagonist in the championship in two thousand and five and two thousand and six was his new teammate Fernando Alonso. So I'm sure that went really down really, really well with um Fernando's very, very delicate ego. So Fernando has been saying other things as well, as as he does. Um <laughs> <laughs> he he had a little dig at his previous team during the Aston Martin no, launch. No, Alonso, uh, dig at previous uh, previous company, never. But, you know, he never actually mentions specifics, but you know exactly what he's intending. He said that he's happy to be at Aston Martin because some teams are are just comfortable finishing in fourth place. I mean, who could that be? Um, but Aston Martin are, I, I, I'm paraphrasing, but Aston Martin have the investment and the... Uh, the kind of will desire to actually go and perform better because they they haven't had that success they're not resting on their laurels can we also mention that the team that he has digged and saying comfortable finishing in fourth place is the same outfit that he won two world championships with and they gave him a drive after he got himself ceremoniously left booted out of McLaren. He was at that well, team three separate occasions, wasn't he? And yeah. almost every and every single time has fallen out of them. So at the end of 2006 it started to go a little bit sour with the team and he thought they weren't pushing quite as hard for him because they knew he was going to McLaren all of that year when he went back there in 2008. I think it was at the end of 2009 before he joined Ferrari it went sour and he started accusing the team of doing things to slow him down and stuff like this and now he's left it for the third time and it gone very sour there this is, a, is the team there, there's that, a common theme this is the team that that got one of their their drivers to deliberately <laughs> crash for him so he could win a race yep and uh as maverick sim racing points out in the chat he accused them of sabotage in 2006 which he was essentially doing which it happened again with mclaren in 2007 and then again at the end of 2009 <laughs> There is a saying that if you think that everybody around you is a dickhead, maybe you're the dickhead. 
we... and I'm very much of the opinion that Fernando Alonso is a dickhead. Right, so whatever happens this year, we have the prospect of Fernando Alonso and the Aston Martin team giving us immense enjoyment and excitement because if it goes well for Alonso, that's pretty cool. That's like quite a cool comeback story and that'll be exciting because he's bound to have some great swashbuckling performances, whatever. That'll be, that'll be a story of itself. But if it goes badly or just not as well as he's expecting, or if he suspects in any way that Stroll is getting preferential treatment as someone who whose dad owns the team, you're likely to get preferential treatment, even subconsciously from certain people at certain points over the year or two years or however long he's there. Um, we're going to see fireworks and they've got history of clashing on track before as well because Stroll's a bit of a dummy and, and bumbles into people. Uh, various yeah, occasions. And also doesn't seem to have much respect for anybody. Not that you should treat anybody any differently, but Stroll has got, yeah, a demonstrable track record of being pretty feisty with teammates. I mean, look, look at him and Seb. He did a couple of pretty out of order moves on Seb, his own teammate last year. And we know how well Alonso takes that when the teammate doesn't do something very well to him as we saw with him and Ocon last year. So I think either way, if Alonso's massively competitive and the team is thing, great. Because Alonso is incredible. He's won the best drivers that are graced the Formula 1 car and he will get everything out of it and give us absolute fireworks. If it doesn't go right, we know we are going He'll to give get us fireworks. high, high velocity <laughs> dummies flying around everywhere, <laughs> spanners, and yeah, the dummies will, will very much be spat and it will be spectacular. And we know he's not shy of slagging people off and throwing them under the bus very publicly and does it even if it's damaging to himself. So I think either way, we're in for a massive win. But to be honest, as much as I like to see him when he freaks out, I'd really like to see him fighting for race wins. That would be that would be the best. Another thing that Dan Fellows also mentioned was the increased fellows. size. That's what I said. I thought you said Fellows. No. Um was the increased size of the wing mirrors um, because obviously drivers don't use them or can't see out of them anyway. Um, obviously forgetting that it was Lance that moved out at last minute while Alonso was trying to overtake him in um, Circuit of Americas and sent Alonso into the stratosphere. And Sean Sharlev in the chat says they have bigger mirrors because of Stroll, um, which <laughs> I think is is accurate. But he, Stroll on the TV. They only work if you look at them, which probably won't happen. I, I heard after um, Suzuka last year, they were thinking of putting sat-nav on the car because Latifi forgot where the track went. So Deborah Hood um, clarified her super chat from earlier, and she asked, what loophole have Aston Martin found? Now, this is a little bit more specific because I haven't heard about them finding a loophole, and, and that's not something probably that we would have exposed to us until testing began and other teams started picking up on it and talking about it. But what I have heard from several publications, a mainstream Formula One journalist, is that at the very least, Aston Martin have been making positive noises about their wind tunnel numbers and that they're confident that they have found massive gains. And when you look at the comparison of last year's car versus this year's car, it's clear it is quite a big departure from what they ended up the season with last last year. Yeah, the car looks... I mean, for us, you don't really know what we're looking at. It looks much more aggressive. You can see there's a lot more features on it. It looks really quite good. Now, they've been sort of quoted that, yeah, there's been lots of very happy, warm, fuzzy feelings coming out of the team that they're producing massive numbers in the wind tunnel. Now, this they could be wary about this because huge numbers in simulation, CFD, and in the wind tunnel doesn't necessarily correlate to correct and 
proper performance in real life as mercedes found out massively last year when they got like they had the same their car was looking like an absolute monster and this is why i think they were so bullish in the preseason. there and they still are convinced that that concept is the right way to go but when they stuck it on track it didn't work so it could go two ways for Aston. i would like to think that it's true it's great to see another team come up in there and another side you know fair play to the strolls you know he's put all of that money into there they're creating a new facility and there, you know, there's quite a lot of excitement about it. He, he's, he's setting up all the ingredients to make a very competitive team. But I heard a little murmuring, and I can't tell where I heard it from, but there's a little murmuring that there might be a little double-edged sword here. So Stroll with a lot of money building a new factory is quite apparently, from someone on the inside that I heard, this may not be true, but might be quite an attractive prospect for engineers who are looking for a nice big salary because they're paying really good wages to go there not particularly do a great amount of effort and it'd be a nice place to go and retire so they might be attracting some good names on big salaries but they might might not be wanting to work too hard now you could take that with a pinch of salt but i heard that from somebody from the inside now there was another season where the team from silverstone who used to be and let's see if we can name all of these jordan spiker midland Force India, Racing Point, Aston Martin. Did I miss any? That's six different names. I think that's correct. It was Jordan. Yeah, no, that's correct. I think so. There was a time when the team from Silverstone, in their Jordan iteration, did one year leap to the front and become title contenders. And that is the subject of history with Alex and Brad this week, which is actually history that Kyle did all the research for. So here is our <laughs> here's our segment separator bumper. So this week's History with Alex and Brad is the season that nobody wanted to win. It's the 1999 season, and I'm going to hand over to Kyle to to give us the little intro. Give us a, a background. Yeah, so I think this season's quite cool. This is at the height of sort of um, what I think of my, my, my golden era of Formula One for me as like a fan in sort of the 90s and going into the early noughties, and particularly as a Schumacher fan, this is a season of heartbreak and breaks. Um, but 99 was crazy. It was one of these seasons, as you said, that it's like nobody seemed to want to win at all. And going into this off the back of 1998, where Schumacher took it to the final round against the dominant McLarens, this is like um, when the McLarens of Silver Arrows came back and were dominant, when Newey was in his prime and there. So going into the 99 season, we're expecting another firecracker sort of season. But it just turned out like McLaren choked so many times that season and dropped the ball almost as much as Ferrari did last year. Um, and obviously, as most people know, Schumacher ended up breaking his leg. Irvine almost won the championship. And Frentzen, Heinz Howard Frentzen, Harry Heinz in a Jordan, like a privateer Jordan, was a genuine championship contender with like three rounds to go. And this is like this is like in modern time saying that that you know like the old Force India was actually in the shout with three rounds to go to win the title. It's absolutely so crazy. I want to colour in the background a little bit. Um, for the Frentzen title challenge because mm. he had come from two pretty crap seasons, seasons at Williams. So Frentzen had gone to Williams to replace Damon Hill mm. in 1997 um, and to partner up with Jacques Villeneuve because um, Frank Williams thought Heinz Harold Frentzen was the next Schumacher. He put a lot of faith in him and it ultimately fizzled out, didn't reach his potential at Williams. And then suddenly in a privateer team, the bright yellow Jordan, he was at the front and was fulfilling that potential. Yeah. 
It's absolutely crazy. And nobody could really see it sort of happen. And again, this is like a confidence, a confidence thing. And also it was born out of just, yeah, McLaren and Ferrari and everyone dropping the ball. So, and this, you know, the craziness started at like the first race of the season when Irvine managed to win his first race after like, I think it was 81 attempts in a Ferrari, like both McLarens that were absolutely dominant. They were on pole over Schumacher by like 1.3 seconds in qualifying, but they were so fragile that like, they weren't expected to make the race. And I don't think either of them made it past like lap 20 or something like that, and they retired. So it leaves like an open goal for, for Irvine to come wobbling through and sort of win. So we get onto Brazil, the second round, and McLaren dominate pretty much. And then we get onto Imola, where we see the first of driving errors from major championship contenders. So this is where, I don't know if you remember that, um, Hackenham come out of the final chicane at Imola and spank it into the wall really hard. So I have maybe a false memory of Hakkinen spinning a chicane at what I Ooh, thought was Monza. Later on. Was that, that's a, that's so later Hakkinen, on in the season where he cries in the yeah. fields. So Hakkinen Amazing. made two chicane exit driving errors and yep. threw away potential points. Yeah. Okay. Didn't he also do it in Australia as well? No, in Australia, that was when he broke down, well, the car broke. Um, uh, it was a safety car, and they went to do the safety car restart, and Hakkinen just didn't accelerate. And Irvine had the actual peace of mind to not overtake him before the start line. So they're doing like 40 mile an hour waiting, and the, yeah, the transmission broke, I think. So yeah, Hakkinen was sort of stuck in like second gear or something and couldn't accelerate. But yeah, so after like Imola, where Hakkinen spanks it into the wall, and I remember this, I remember Murray's commentary from this time, the Tafosi going mad because Schumacher in an underperforming Ferrari managed to haul it up and win. Obviously, the Tafosi goes mad. It's Imola, like, uh, you know, Ferrari's home race. And then Ferrari managed to get a one two at Monaco, and it was all looking really, really, really good. It's like, right, Schumi is going to walk this. McLaren was still by far the fastest car, I got but an, they just kept choking. I got an interesting tidbit about, McLa- about uh, Monaco. Um, the one thing that Schumacher knew he couldn't qualify on pole for Monaco. So he was mostly obviously knows that the only chance to really get ahead in that race was the start. And during the day off that they have at Monaco, he went back to Fiorano, and this is in the days of unlimited testing, and just spent a whole day doing practice starts. Wow. And what happens? He jumps the McLaren off the start. <laughs> and they went on to went wow that's crazy and yeah this is this is kind of right these are the this is in a day of crazy just all all out testing constantly and this will kind of breathe in do we have a tire of, war at this point or were we on just no bridge stones no the tire war had finished because it was good years last year in 1998 and it was a good year unfortunately right. failed on schumacher's car at the end of 98 which sort so, of went so they wanted to barrel over title and didn't so this is ferrari's first year on the bridge stones okay just on the bridge, so the tyre war had kind of gone by this point. So after Monaco, it's looking pretty rosy, actually. Ferrari thinking, yeah, we're going all right. I mean, Schumacher had to retire at the first race due to some well, just bizarre issues at the start. He got stuck behind Hakkinen. He couldn't get off the grid, and then he stalled and had to go to the back of the grid and then had a blowout and had to fail. But so going into Canada, Schumacher's looking quite quite healthy. I think he's got the championship lead at this point, and that's that race where the Wall of Champions got its name, the Wall of Champions, because we... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Had Villeneuve, Damon Hill and Michael Schumacher made, he said he allows himself one driving error per year. And he made it, and I think he was in the lead, and he spanked it into the wall of champions. And that was when all three champions on the grid put it into that wall. And the great thing about when Schumacher spanked it into the wall, you had Martin and Murray um, complimenting him on how he's just stroking it home, taking it nice. <laughs> oh, he's in the wall! He's out! It was amazing. It was brilliant. I really yeah, enjoyed that. Went, <laughs> went in too hard and clunked it. So, so this is looking a bit. Um, so it's looking a bit sort of hairy now. And the titles get getting tight so we've got the very fast mclarens but very very fragile we've got the ferrari which is kind of okay and capable in one driver's hands and irvine kind of faltering and irvine being his sort of bridesmaid role to schumacher which is what it was that was the given there was no questions asked and irvine was pretty open about this during the time and after the time he was like well yeah what else was i supposed to be everyone knew that that was fine so so it's it's starting to sort of take a shape and then all of a sudden Frentzen comes from nowhere and wins a very dramatic, very wet Manicor French Grand Prix in a Jordan. This is only his second race win after winning in Imola in 97. And he's had a complete terrible time since. As Brad said, he had a terrible time at Williams. They kind of dropped him like a stone at the end. And he was he was damaged goods going to Jordan in 1999. Frentzen was damaged goods and looked on the bow. And all of a sudden, he, he nabbed a win from a very clever... Jordan pit stop at the at sort of the wet, dry French Grand Prix. And she, well, Schumacher should have won that race, but had an electrical problem. And Frentzen didn't stop again and went through and won it. And this sudden, all of a sudden sort of catapulted him kind of into a bit of a title fight. But at the moment, like nobody was really thinking of this, but this put him in really good steed. And then we got to Silverstone. Which... Can I just say, I, I was a giant Jordan fan back in this period my bedroom was literally yellow <laughs> i was wearing jordan i was a super super fan i was wearing like jordan team shirts just out and about how old would i have been 14 years old so i was like really it was my formula one kind of awakening at this point i've been watching it before for several years but this is when i was really into it watching everything but that frentzen race where he won at mangy core mm. i missed it I missed that no. race because I was I was on my way to Wales with a friend to do some go-karting and we were travelling in the car when that race was on. We listened to it on the radio, but I was gutted because when did Jordan win? I mean, they, they'd yeah. only won one race up until that point. And that was another, the, the, the Spa 98 Grand Prix. That was the crazy sort of iconic race. And, yeah, and this was such a special thing. So yeah, modern day equivalent was, this is like when Perez won the Sakir Grand Prix, you know, in, in the thing, this is a privateer team. You've got the giants of Ferrari and McLaren. And during these this, this era, the grid's quite spread out. It's not like as close as it is now. It's actually much more inconceivable then for Jordan to win a race than it than it is for, say, like Aston Martin to win a race now. That's a much higher, like, you know, a much easier, like, achievable objective now than it than it was back then. So it just made it absolutely crazy. And and back, if you missed the race back then, you either had to wait till I think it was half ten after the ITN news. Oh yeah, we had no, it. we had no Sky uh, Q or whatever we've no. got now with it on record. No YouTube, nothing. You watched it, or you you watched it, or you watched the highlights, or you missed it entirely, and or, just had to or caught up on Teletext. Read it. 
Lennart in the chat saying Spa 98 was at the big crash. Yes, it was. And we're going to cover that on a separate episode. Maybe we'll get Kyle back or maybe we'll get Kyle and Danny back. Because I know they both will be desperate to talk about that. So that's a whole subject in itself. But sorry, Kyle, we've got to Mangiko. We've got to the French Grand Prix, French and wins. And it's all, yeah, and it's all looking good. So Schumacher should have won that race, really. He had to come in and change steering wheel, an electrical issue when he, from the lead. They actually took a gamble and went for a wet setup. So he was crap when the rate, when it was dry, but when it rained, he then started dominating and then had to come in. And I think he wobbled home to fifth in the end. And if I remember correctly, I think Irvine, Ferrari blocked Irvine from overtaking him to maximize Schumacher's points, which will probably come to hurt them later in the season. But then it gets to Silverstone. Now at Silverstone, which is obviously... I, I was sitting at um, the exit of Club, looking across towards oh, Stoke. No Just for, foreshadowing. I'm not going to say anything happened. I didn't, I didn't necessarily see anything. <laughs> I definitely saw it happen. But carry on. Yeah, so the start. Schumacher makes a bad start. Irvine gets ahead of him. And, and, uh, and as we know, Irvine should default to Schumacher. So Irvine's sort of going down the hangar straight into Stowe. They're flat out, about 190 mile an hour. Schumacher, um, Irvine wasn't getting out of the way at this point, and Schumacher, obviously desperate to get through, goes up to the, launches up the inside and locks both front wheels and just steams off the track like the brakes haven't worked. And then it turns out it has a rear brake failure, head first into the barriers and breaks his leg. You see him try to get out of the car, sink back down when he realised, and I think it was the um, suspension had pierced the side of the cockpit and actually impaled his leg. So he was a bit stuck in the car. He told the uh, medical team that was pulling him out of the car to phone his wife and tell him, tell her he's broken his legs. He knew oh. instantly that that <laughs> was it and it was all over. Yeah. So there was a giant cheer from the crowd, by the way. Obviously, nobody knew that Schumacher had, had hurt himself. All we knew watching was that we didn't like Schumacher and that he'd crashed. And that was just good because we're in the time where you know, Schumacher winning was what we didn't want. Um, there was a similar partisan feeling to Silverstone last year um, against Verstappen. Um, anytime anything remotely not good happened to Max, the crowd were cheering largely. Um, and it was a similar sentiment towards Schumacher back then. However, it then obviously emerged he'd hurt himself and I think everyone probably felt a bit bad. <laughs> yeah, and it was quite bad. And there was a bit of needle and as... And as um as Danny points out in the chat, yeah, there was a bit of a sort of needle. They reckon um, sort of Ferrari were apparently a bit upset with Irvine because he should have let Schumacher through, through before that. But you can't really expect that. You know, I don't think Schumacher expected the favours from him, but I don't think Irvine didn't, did a lot wrong there, to be honest. So um, so after Silverstone, we, um, after Silverstone we, we move on to the next race, which is Austria. And obviously Ferrari need a replacement. And there is an out of work driver at the time who'd actually already done three grand prix earlier in that season which was mika salo who had been dropped from tyrell i think it was the previous year uh, and wasn't actually you know known as that much of a hot prospect but there weren't that many drivers around so and an equivalent say of like kevin magnuson or nico Hulkenberg, kind yeah. of as an equivalent to nowadays but maybe not quite as good maybe not considered as good he might be yeah. a hot prospect but he never had a chance to really show himself and he was actually dropped at the at the end of the previous season and decided to sit out ended up when Zonta hurt his foot, but I think he broke his foot in qualifying for Brazil. Um, he got three races in the BAR team, but then Ferrari put stuck him in the Ferrari and he's got the chance of an absolute lifetime. And also going up against Mika Hakkinen in a rival car, because he was the only other Finn, the only other Finn on the grid, but they hated each other. Him and Hakkinen did not like each other whatsoever. And it was quite well documented at the time that they hated each other. 
So it was kind of ideal Ferrari to have a sort of second driver in there that really didn't like their main championship rival. So that worked quite well. But then we go into the Austrian Grand Prix and this is where McLaren start to choke and choke hard. This is when, um, do you remember David Coulthard punted Hackenden out? I think it was on the first lap at the hairpin. Uh, Austria. So Austria, the two McLarens came together God. and it was just a complete catastrophe basically for what they were doing. <laughs> and it was all going, it was all going completely wrong. And so Irvine comes wobbling through and wins like and these aren't Irvine like taking like winning races by the scruff of the neck this is Irvine sort of everything collapsing around him and him sort of picking the pieces up it and... tells you how good that Ferrari actually was for Irvine to actually be in contention I mean the interesting thing is for Irvine to be in contention for the championship the whole way through the season he actually never qualified on the front row of the grid and the only no other... never qualified on the front row of the grid and the only other driver to ever have done that, but he went on to win the championship, was uh, Nicky Lauda in 1984. Nicky Lauda in 84 never qualified in the front row of the grid and won the championship. Wow. I think Irvine might have had one front row that year, nope. maybe. It, really? It, it came from Sean he Kelly, did... so I'm not going to doubt Sean Kelly. Well, I thought he was second at Malaysia, actually, that year. I'm not going to doubt Sean Kelly. Chat, <laughs> ev- ev- everyone go check it out. <laughs> Chat and tell us. Who, who's think... right, Alex or Kyle? No, Sean I... Kelly or Kyle. I think I think Irvine was second that year um, in Malaysia in qualifying because um, because we'll get onto that a bit later. That was Schumacher's epic comeback. Stuart um, Neal says, "If only Salo had a dad who owned an F1 team." <laughs> there we go. There's our stroll connection. Sorry, carry on, Carl. Yeah. So uh, where are we? So we're, so so we're at Austria, um, and yeah. So so Irvine wins, and then the very next race. This is this is what I find crazy, and this is really heartbreaking for me because I remember watching this. Um, so Salo in his second race in Ferrari. And doing an amazing job. Out qualifies Irvine, is running second in this the race. This makes me so sad. I know, running second I in the race. This. I couldn't believe it. And he's like super sub. Irvine couldn't really get near him. So he's outperforming Irvine. Is and Yeah, he's probably had quite a bit of testing by this point. But still, you're jumping into the team. You're trying to play second fiddle. Hakkinen has going, is it the Saks curve in, on the way into the stadium in Hockenheim, the old Hockenheim when you're coming yeah, so through this is 20 miles an hour? Massive blowout in the yeah. rear huge blowout and i remember the crowd yeah. the cheer from the crowd was kind of yeah yeah it was crazy because all the crowd were obviously schumacher fans but they're obviously cheering for ferrari not for the mercedes mclaren which is which sort of going so um Hakkinen flies off into the barrier and salo he has an open goal he's done it all he's going to win his one and only chance he will ever get to win imagine the Imagine um, when George Russell took over from Hamilton when Hamilton had COVID and he grabs the race in Bahrain by the scruff of the neck mm. and he's winning. He's beating Bottas. You know, he's not he's not really used to the car. He doesn't fit. He's just been subbed, but he's winning the race. Imagine if instead of Mercedes screwing the pit stop and the putting the wrong tires on and having a puncture, imagine if Mercedes had just ordered Bottas to win the race and for Russell to pull over. That's the kind of heartbreaking yeah. feeling that we were having watching Salo, who knew this was only a very temporary opportunity in the car, watching him have to just give away his, what turned out to be his only ever opportunity at a race win. Yeah, yeah. And it was actually heartbreaking. He did everything he could and had to move over and let Herbine take the win for his for his championship title. And even in, so I didn't really cover his first race in Austria. He did, he would have done really well in Austria as well, but he broke his front wing on the first lap. I think, and he couldn't really recover from that. So that's why he didn't. So, so Tyler was actually really strong and a really great substitute. So after after that, like Irvine's now essentially won two races on the bounce, has got the momentum. I think he's leading the championship by this point. 
McLaren are probably wondering what on earth's going on. And all this time, Ferrari are badgering Schumacher and trying to put him in the car. And they're like, when can you come back? When can you come back? Um, because even though Salah's doing a great job, they, I'm, I still think Ferrari at this point are still thinking that we can get Michael back in the car and we can still win this championship with Michael. Because um, I'm pretty sure Ferrari weren't confident that Irvine had what it took. Rightfully it. so. And, I was going to yeah. say correctly so. Yeah, there was um, there was Eddie Irvine was always a number two driver. I don't think he really cared that much either. No, you know, he's... he was he was a playboy and he had money and he got to drive around in exotic racing cars around the world and got to mm. enjoy himself on the weekends and amazingly found himself yeah. a Ferrari drive. He, he was, was a number two living... driver that was much further off than nowadays Absolutely. we'd allow a number two driver to be. He was um, um didn't he didn't wasn't he wasn't he the one that and Senna punched across the table or something? Yeah, um, um Senna punched him. This is after Irvine's debut in Suzuka, I believe in nineteen ninety-one, maybe, and he dared to unlap himself from Senna, and Senna actually punched him in in the paddock afterwards. Uh and Irvine sort of always always joked about that so but Irvine was pretty cool you know afterwards and and there's some great podcast out with Irvine sit there like you know, afterwards and he's pretty candid he spoke to it he's pretty happy and you know he's pretty honest so I was like Teddy I always think it's good but I don't think anybody really thought he was world championship material probably not himself deep down either he was he was he was a pretty honest chap but so so yeah so, we, so suddenly he finds himself in like a championship sort of leading position and then mclaren suddenly realized we need to wake up and start stop stop dropping the ball but mclaren had a little bit of inter-rivalry so it'd been bubbling since coulthard took hackenden out and then at spa coulthard got the jump on hackenden off the line so coulthard's not out of the championship at the moment he's down with french and they're quite a few points off but they're still very much in the hunt and coulthard passes hackenden pretty rudely and fiercely at spa with a little bit of contact and hangs on and takes the win. So he's nabbed some points off of Hackenham, and apparently Hackenham refused to speak to him or shake his hand afterwards. So there's a so little bit of infighting brewing at McLaren. This is, without the infighting, this is a little bit Leclerc and Sainz at Silverstone last mm-hmm. year. You've got one driver who's actually got a shot at the championship, another yep. driver who has a very outside shot, but the team don't force the most likely driver to get the points they kind of allow the allow the lower down driver to to take points away from their star driver i think the difference as well with silverstone last year was science was sniffing his first victory which obviously adds yeah, that's fair. which obviously added to that as well um hang on mm. was that science's first ever yeah it was wasn't yeah. it yeah, yeah, yeah that's why it was such a popular win yeah oh, his it, only win yes but it but it defied sense for ferrari and it was just another one of the the catalogue of ball drops all the way through the season that they that they had so we go back to sort of 99 mclaren are starting to infight a little bit here but they should have just really put all their eggs behind hackenham but but coulthard was still in with a shout yeah the drivers aren't getting on at this point um and it's all sort of floundering so we kind of like get on we get on to monza now monza 99 i remember very very fondly and again this is another sort of highlight of why irvine probably didn't deserve to win this title because Irvine only qualified, I think it was down in eighth, and Salo out-qualified him, and Salo stuck it on the podium in that race, and Irvine was only sixth, could only manage one point for six, so the points in this thing was 10 down to one, and they only scored the first six positions scored, and Ferrari couldn't get Salo out of the way to, to, to get him to help Irvine because there were so many cars between him and Irvine, so Salo's just doing a good job out there, and the job that Irvine couldn't do, but Monza is famous for Hakkinen 
losing it into the Retifelio chicane. So the Monza chicane, the Monza back then had a double flip-flop chicane essentially going into it called the Retifelio. And it was like a flip-flop sort of flip-flop. And on the way in, it was a very slow corner where you had to attack the curbs. And Hakkinen had one of the strangest Formula One crashes I've ever seen. And you could just see how much tension was on him because he was throwing the wheel out of the car before it almost come to a standstill. So what Hakkinen had done he was usually, I believe, in third going into there and leaving it in third to hit the bumps. And he accidentally shifted down to second. Or and he that, should have been in second and accidentally shifted down to first. Too many shifts, locked the diff up, and it just span him. And he knew as soon as what he'd done, but there was no even attempt to think. He just cracked. At that split second he'd done that mistake, he mentally just broke. He completely broke. And even before the car has stopped moving, he's taken the steering wheel off and thrown it out of the car, gets out and has a massive freak out. You see him throwing his gloves on the ground. The Tifosi Ferrari are going mad and throwing bottles at him and all sorts. And then from the helicopter cam, poor Mika, I felt really sorry for Mika because I was not like an anti-Mika fan. I thought Mika was quite a nice guy and a really fast driver. Even though I'm a Schumacher fan, I really liked Mika Hakkinen. And for those of were... you listening on, on Twitter, Kyle is wearing a Ferrari shirt. <laughs> yeah so and poor Mika he's trying to have a bit of a cry you, you know when life gets a bit too much you kind of cry you want to take yourself into off into a cupboard and cry well Hacken tried to do this in a hedge and essentially the helicopter found him and there's this iconic shot of him bawling his eyes out and crying like crouched down over his helmet with the Tafosi throwing bottles at him essentially he's just trying to hide in a hedge and um, you know just like plastic bottles and stuff and it was just iconic well, that's fine and just just full plastic bottles of coke <laughs> I know. I don't, I don't, but they were sort of cheering and jeering and bless him hacking and just you just see how much the pressure got and it was just another massive choke and guess who comes wobbling through and takes the win our friend harry heinz in the jordan again wins his second race in the jordan and now all of a sudden looks like they got quite momentum on their side and he's actually now right in the championship hunt again which i found crazy so brad is a jordan fan you must have been going mental when hacking and binned it yeah, so this was, it seemed real. This was, I'm trying to think of another sports parallel. Who was it? See, this is, this is showing my football ignorance. Who was it that, what was it? Leicester that won the premiership a few, a few years ago, like really yep. unlikely winner. <laughs> and it was a bit like that for me. I was like, Jordan can actually win this. Like they actually, this car is just about good enough with everyone else screwing up. And Frenson, because Damon Hill was in the other Jordan and he was doing really badly. He was phoning it in. He was just seeing out his contract because he was worried that there'd be a huge financial penalty if he quit early. Mm. But he really was, he was not very young when he started in Formula One. Mm. He was uh, very much at the end of his driving career, not just his, his Formula One career, his complete driving career by this point. And Frenson was massively outperforming Hill. Um, and so anyway, at least with the lead car, I thought maybe, maybe he can win this championship. Um, yeah. And it was crazy. So with the Hill thing, I don't know if you said, it was actually Hockenheim Grand Prix that they accused him of parking a perfectly healthy car because he apparently couldn't be bothered. He said there was something wrong with the brakes and parked it. And apparently there was nothing wrong with it. He just had enough <laughs> pretty much, which is pretty bad when you think back from it. I'd like to see a feature. I don't think he's ever been asked about this. I'd love to ask a question with him in a question and answer. We'll, ask him, did we'll he have just to get him on the podcast. Yes. I'll just, I'll just message. I'll tweet him. I'm sure he'll come on. 
It's got nothing better to do. <laughs> so Come just on. going back a little bit, just because um, the, the chat hasn't talked about anything else since I mentioned it. Um, it turns out Sean Kelly was wrong, and I've actually texted him while you lot have been chatting. Have I and, just... And, what, and he, he said that um, he, he blamed it on running errands, and I'll let him have that. Um, <laughs> so Kyle and, is the new Sean Kelly. Congratulations, what, Kyle, Sean, on your new position Sean, at Sky that, F1. And now that Sean has gone back and had a look, what he's realised is he Malaysia? nearly won... No, he had three front row starts really? so he was totally wrong what? Uh, he was really wrong he was really wrong which which is <laughs> rare for sean considering for anyone who doesn't know sean kelly is is f1 Statman, who is the that one that provides all of the major f1 broadcasts he's with their statistics um and um uh, what he's actually said is it's he was fighting for a world championship and never got a pole never got a pole so it's slightly different less impressive but um I'll, uh, because, he responds, because he actually responds to my messages, I'll give him a pass. <laughs> <laughs> and we love Sean. Yeah, it's okay. a legend. So, so we we've are got on... Jordan in the hunt after Monza with two victories. Schumacher's still out of it because his leg's still not healed and Hakkinen's throwing away points left, right and centre. Yeah, basically. And it's just, and now we get on to a very famous race, which I think you've covered on here before briefly and probably as a show in itself, which is the 1999 European Grand Prix or the Luxembourg Grand Prix, which I think it was known back then at the Nürburgring, which I think most people know how this race goes, but there's a really crazy feature in this race. So Frentzen, now this shows how much confidence and stuff does for you. Frentzen now in with a sniff, off the back of his second win that season in a Jordan is riding high, unbelievably puts it on pole, puts a Jordan on pole. Like he just drove out of his skin at his home race and all of the momentum is with Frentzen and he leads and he goes off the race. And yeah, at this point I'm screaming and I'm like, I'm like, come on, Harry Heinz, like everyone, like, like, like I'm really, cause he's always been the quiet one. He was always in Schumacher's shadow. Schumacher stole his girlfriend and married I, her. <laughs> you, you're not supposed to phrase it like that, but yes, I was going to say exactly that because um, Connie, is it Connie? Uh, Schumacher, Michael Schumacher's wife was originally um, in the start of their Formula One careers. Heinz Harold Frenchman's girlfriend. So there's a little Didn't bit. Didn't Max Verstappen of... do something like that? Oh, moving swiftly on. We haven't did at Max Carina, or Red right. Bull the entire podcast, which is a first for us. Yeah, mm. we did. We did say Red Bull pretended to put out their car and it wasn't the real car, but that's just the facts. Anyway, Carl, facts sorry. So at Nurburgring. It's the Nurburgring, right? So Harry Heinz is doing really well and he's actually leading the race. And this is when, again, Hakkinen, well, Hakkinen and Dash McLaren choke again because this is when the rain's coming, the rain's not coming. They flinch and blink first, pit Hakkinen onto wet tyres and it's and the rain dries up and he's running around massively off the pace, has to pit again for dry tyres, comes out and drive tyre, dry tyres just as the heavens open. So they've thrown away their race, basically. They have thrown away a potential sort, sort of result. So the, so the door and the goal are just wide open for Frentzen leading. So Frentzen dives into the pits, gets some tyres on it um, and comes out of the pits. Now there's a weird quirk and this was released years later. He then heartbreakingly pulls up at the first corner and just stops on the side of the track. The car just conks out and it's like, oh no, is that a mechanical failure? Like, how unlucky is this? You qualified on pole, you're doing everything right and the car lets you down coming out of the pits. It kind of emerged some years later that this wasn't a mechanical failure at all. This was some rather horrible and pressure-induced finger trouble 
from both Harry Hines and his engineer at the time, his Sam Michael, who I believe is the most cursed Formula One engineer in time. Sam Michael joins a team, they're going down. I don't, I don't think there's anything he's done, but he just seems to be absolutely cursed. So, so what happens? They were running a Mugen Honda engine at the time, and they had this weird, they had a feature called anti-stall, which some F1 cars have at the pit stop, pit stop, which apparently the drivers had to enable on the way into the pit lane. And it just made sure, just in case they stalled, it would catch it for them, an anti-stall. But they had to un activate they had to deactivate this on the way out of the pit lane and Frenton had done this at every race this year and the protocol was Sam Michael is engineer has to tell him cancel cancel so they say because of course you're driver, you're coming to pits you've got a lot in your thing they're probably doing a lot of switch changes as well even back then there's a lot going on so the engineer has to remind him to cancel cancel to turn off the um the anti-stall and for whatever reason Sam Michael's obviously quite in a quite stressed situation as well forgets to tell Harry Heinz Frenton forgets to deactivate it. He comes out of the pit lane and the anti-stall, like the engine shits itself a little bit, the anti-stall come, comes in and basically puts the car into neutral and increases the revs. So for Frenton, this feels like a gearbox transmission failure. You're like, you're like, you're like I've, got, I've got no drive, revs the car and the car's still running. So he pulls up at the outside of turn one, thinks the transmission's gone and switches the car off. Oh. And then retired. If he just waited, if he just waited for the engineer to come on the well, radio and say, no "Have one you tried knew. turning off anti-stall?" No one. They only knew when they got the car back, and they fired it up, and it fired up first time, and that's when they knew what the mistake that they'd done, and it was completely self-inflicted. That's gutting. It, it's a bit like that Nigel Mansell one at Canada, I think, nineteen ninety-two, when he was coming round on the last lap, like waving to the crowd, and then yeah. flicked the switch and turned the engine off uh, yeah, on the, the run-up to the last corner. <laughs> Yeah, um, I felt so bad for Harry Hines and what the Jordan team did, they were really good. So to try to save both, um, to try to save both Sam Michael's sort of like, well, their sanity really, and a bit of the reputation, they, they sort of rallied around them and they said it was an electrical fault, said there was an electrical fault with the car. And that's what everyone thought it was, but actually it was a completely self-inflicted wound. Now That's the worst kind. Yeah, like it's really, really bad. And so imagine he had the momentum with him on his side. Imagine if he'd got that win, he would have been right in there and level on points going in and the momentum fully on their side. And so this was just heartbreaking. And essentially, I think that pretty much killed him. I think he lost his, he had his one little shot to be a god. And I think, yeah, they choked essentially, which felt really, really bad. But what a story. Still going in. So now and, we and move... Stuart, Stuart won that race. There are yeah. Johnny Herbert actually Johnny won, Herbert that race. So won another, that race. So many things in this season were like iconic moments in Formula One history, but it was all in this one season. Yeah. So we have the, the hacking and crying thing, um, Jordan winning these crazy random races, yep. people throwing things away, Schumacher mm -hmm. breaking his leg, Stuart Grand Prix winning their first yeah. race with Johnny Herbert. And the Ferrari pit stop gaff at this same race. Remember the three wheels on their wagon? That's when... Irvine, to be fair to Irvine, he would have got a load of points at this race and would have been taking the championship lead and looking really, really good. But um, Ferrari only got three wheels out and they're all standing in the pit lane. There's only three wheels on it and they're all looking at each other, having a mother's meeting and no one knows where the wheels are. And it, 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 it was hilarious. It was like they're all, it was very Ferrari, put it that way, before Ferrari were known for doing this sort of thing. So, it's, so if you've only watched Formula One last year, you'd look back at that and think, ah, oh, they've always been like that. But no, there wasn't. So they completely threw that away themselves. And then that sets us up. So there's two races left. There's Malaysia. So we're going to a brand new track. And I remember the excitement and the hype around this because we hadn't, in my sort of lifetime, really watching Formula One, we hadn't really gone to a brand new designated, like made 
facility. And that was Tilka's first track. Tilka's that, first that track. That opened the new era of um, racetracks in Formula One. Which was and funny. They, they got they got called Tilkadromes, but actually, you look look at a lot of the, the Tilkadromes now. They're mostly the good circuits. Yeah, and this one was one of his best. And it was weird. We hadn't seen corner combinations like this. It was very unusual, and the grandstand as well was quite spectacular. The whole thing. This was not sort of new to. Well, this was extremely new to everyone. This is not the norm. These sorts of the tracks were very fast flowing middle sectors, difficult. You know, like quite clearly constructed to be difficult corners this really wasn't a thing so we go to malaysia it's it's a it's a new track ferrari desperate it's a funny story around schumacher's return ferrari desperate to have schumacher back in schumacher's not too keen to come back really he's watching irvine pretty much screw it up and you know schumacher's been working like you know you know, Wilmer's worked himself to death over the last four years, doing loads of testing, tried to get Ferrari competitive to be the Ferrari champion, the first one since Jody Schechter in the 70s to bring it home. And he breaks his leg. He's watching Irvine sort of squander the chance. And Ferrari wants him to come back to help Irvine to be the one to win to win it for Ferrari. Irvine's leaving. They already know that Irvine's leaving for the new Jaguar team at this point as well. So I don't think quite a lot of people in Ferrari particularly wanted Irvine to be the guy to win the title for the first time for him. So Schumacher probably doesn't want to come back. And DeMontes Emelo was calling up, was calling his house, apparently, saying, um, you know, to call him how Michael is. And and I think it was um, Gina Maria, I think is Schumacher's daughter, picked up the phone, quite young daughter. And <laughs> DeMontes Emelo apparently is like, oh, um, um, how's your dad? You know, where's your dad? Can I speak to him? She goes, oh, yeah, he's just outside playing football. This is um, like when Alex's boss calls amazing. him and, and then his daughter answers and says, Daddy's on the simulator when yeah. you're supposed to be on a sick day. <laughs> Luckily, that's never happened. Yeah. so It will so never it, happen because I work solidly throughout my work. Thank you very much. How dare you insinuate anything? Especially because I have smoldering. clients that listen to this. Especially because I have clients that listen to this show. <laughs> Always so working. So the story goes, it was either, there were like two versions. It was, it was either his outside playing football or he's just putting his football boots on either way he was clearly running around and de Montezemolo pretty much said enough you're coming back <laughs> you're coming back to do some testing whether you like it or not so Schumacher makes his now sort of epic comeback to Malaysia first track sticks it on pole by a second over Irvine which is why I was pretty sure Irvine had a front row start that year um a second faster than just about everyone in the field and then and Brundle made the famous lines during the race of he's spent all afternoon driving around as slow as he can and he still needs to let his shoot his teammate through to win twice. So and this basically... is this is where Irvine uh, was quoted as saying the annoying thing about Michael is not only is he the best driver in the world, he's also the best number two driver in the mm. world or something to that yeah. effect. Because <laughs> he repaid Irvine back for all, you know, remember waiting for the phone call, the epic Irvine in Suzuka 97. Irvine had been a great wingman when he could when he could be. To Schumacher and he sort of affected so it was nice to Schumacher from for Schumacher to be able to pay him back but yeah that race was ridiculous Schumacher had almost a second the lap over the entire field was one of the only cars on a one-stop strategy where every everyone else is on the two-stop strategy and basically he goes off at the front he then has to slow down on lap four to let Irvine through and then he tries to act as a blocker to the McLarens Coulthard managed to get past him and then subsequently retired because McLaren kept breaking. They had ridiculous amounts of um, unreliability that season. Can I give you stats on the unreliability for that season? This would be a good time, wouldn't it? Um, So in 1999, 
across 16 races, there was 157 retirements. Now, to give you an idea of what that actually means, bear in mind, 1999 wasn't a new era of engine or or any particular fancy thing on the cars. It was a normal mid-development season in Formula 1. To give you an idea, 2014, when the new engine rigs came in and the F1 cars were horrifically unreliable... Do you know how many reliabilities, how many fa- how many reliability failures there were in no. um, 2014? Tell us. 77. And there was only 67 in the following season. So in two seasons of a new engine regulation, of an entirely new engine, there was 144 failures, which is still less than 1999. That's 11, they had on average 11 finishers per race. And that goes, and that is almost as bad as the 1984 season when they introduced turbos for the first time and they had 11.9. This, this is the Formula One I remember. As well. This is this is my childhood Formula One. Just mm. wait for them to break down. Your guy can win if all the others <laughs> break down. So we have one more race to go, Carl. Yeah, well, well, there's a lot of controversy after after Malaysia 1999. So, okay, barge so, boards. So, well, yes. Yeah, so we so we can. So as the race sort of goes on, Schumacher lets everyone through once, holds everyone up and spends the whole race driving as slow as he can, holding Hakkinen up, has to then let Irvine through again later in the race and hold people back. So he had to let him through twice. He was the only car on a one-stop strategy, but still had a pace advantage. Crazy. But then immediately after the race, the stewards threw Ferrari out of the race and disqualified them, which essentially... Correctly. Correctly. Well, yeah, correctly. And depends who you sort of sort of speak to about this. And if you think the FA doing a bit of dodgy stuff to set up a season finale, where have we heard this before? Sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, yeah, nothing is new. Too soon, Kyle. Too soon. <laughs> um, nothing is really new here. So yeah, the stewards at the track measured Ferrari's barge boards and in the normal way. Well, in a normal way, and said there were ten uh, a centimeter, which nobody uses centimeters, ten millimeters, which is quite a lot which is actually massive, in fact, in engineering terms, um, sort of they, they were too big. And it's like, well, you can't do this. And threw Ferrari out of the race. Now, this meant, but by default, McLaren won the championship with Hakkinen. So, of course, Irvine... Um, and, on, and on the podium, Hakkinen didn't obviously know about this and was really pissed off on the podium because, obviously, he hadn't won the race. Yeah. Yeah, and it just been duped by the Ferraris and knew that Michael was back and was going to be a thorn in his side to help the faltering Irvine. So yeah, so Ferrari immediately appealed the decision and this is a bit dodge. So of course you've got Bernie Eccleston, the poison dwarfs running around and he wants his, he wants... He, poison dwarf. Just, just for the record, Kyle called Bernie Eccleston a poison dwarf, which is a very accurate description. Yes. <laughs> but also to anyone who isn't aware of Kyle Power, this is one of the typical Kyle isms. When when we have Kyle <laughs> back on the show, you will get at least one of these an episode. And they're always gold. <laughs> I'll stop short of calling him a slinky because I don't like saying I push old men downstairs, but <laughs> so, yeah, so we'll stop short of that one. But so so Bernie Eccleston wants his I only just finale. got that. <laughs> so Bernie Eccleston really wants his grand finale. So he's going mad and I bet he's doing anything he can with his lawyers saying, right, we need to get up with some complete fudge words for this. So basically Ferrari appeal it, it goes to the International Court of Appeals. The FIA managed to somehow fudge the words of oh we've we've measured it from a different point and there's a five millimeter tolerance which Five millimeters is massive. A five millimeter tolerance is what? So this race was actually covered very recently on the podcast called Bring Back V10s, which is one of the podcasts by the race. 
Um, and Malaysia 99 was it was like, I think it was last week, actually. And they went into detail about this particular element. And it was it was definitely dodgy. Ross Braun had already admitted in a press conference that Ferrari had made a mistake. Yeah, we've, we've interpreted this rule wrong. We're sorry. And they kind of backed themselves out of it. You know, they, they knew they were in the wrong. However, they then had lots of meetings and they they basically argued that if you looked at it in a real particular way, and if you took a very skewed interpretation of what the meaning of the rules really was, if you if you measured the particular part of the barge board from a certain angle, which wasn't the normal reference angle, then you could argue that it was kind of legal. And the FIA or Bernie or whoever was making the decision went, Max, yes, Max yes, that's, that's the one. That's exactly what, that's the, the reasoning we're going to use. And then they got to obviously have the result reinstated and we had a championship decider set yeah. up. And, th- and we- there's, there's a, sorry, Carl, there's a good video of um, uh, Ross Braun with a piece of with a yeah. piece of the car sort of showing a measure across and it to show how it works. There. And then Max Mosley going, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going over it. it Max Mosley doing Max Mosley things, basically. Yeah, yeah. So Let's not talk about those. Connor Edwards pointed out in the chat, it was also not the first time FA's fudged wording of their own rules to keep changing as a result. You know, so so they wanted that. So I'd imagine behind there was Bernie, probably with his hired goons on speed dial, was like basically like, if none of this happens... I'm going to dig a hole for you in the desert, pretty much. It's just like, I am going to get my season finale. He's got his golden boy, Michael, back, you know, so he's, so he's bringing it, and he wants a season finale. So we go on to Japan, and sure, he sticks it on pole. But again, deep down, I don't blame him. He probably really doesn't want Irvine, <laughs> Irvine to win the title. It's probably something something inside him sort of, sort of dying to have that. And you can't blame him, you would, if you've done everything like that, and you're just like, he doesn't deserve it. Um, so the race starts. Schumacher gets jumped by Hackenham. And then loses some of his pace, shall we say? Like I'm a Schumacher fan, and I fully, fully believe that he didn't fully go for it during that race because I'm pretty sure deep down that he did not want Irvine to win. And I don't, and I don't really blame him for that. So basically, Schumacher can't can't catch can't catch Hackenden. Irvine is floundering behind Schumacher. So basically, if Schumacher wins, Irvine could win the title by finishing third. I believe he had a four point gap. Um, he had a four-point gap, like advantage over Hackenham going into that race. So basically, Schumacher had to keep ahead of Hackenham and win Irvine the title, and it didn't happen. Schumacher comes in second. Ferrari win the constructors' championship. Hackenham and McLaren somehow, after all of the mistakes, wobble through and manage to win their title. And Irvine comes really close to being the most undeserving Formula One champion of all time. And that was Ferrari's first championship win in sixteen years. Yep. Which is a really long time. But the thing is, Ferrari seem to have this. They have a hot spell and then nothing for decades, mm-hmm. um, which is always super, super interesting. But what it just shows is sometimes, even in the very, very best car, which obviously that Ferrari most likely was with what Schumacher was able to do with it, to be that far ahead of someone like Hakkinen, um, shows that there is a big difference between people who can go out there and win championships in the best car and people who really can't. And some people who can't win championships in the best car either. That's what I'm, that's, that's, that's what I mean. You know. well, that's the thing. Even think... if they've got the best car, I mean, um, and yeah. Irvine, I have to agree, probably would have been a pretty undeserving champion had it gone his way. Yeah. And if, if that race at Silverstone or Schumacher hadn't broken his legs, hadn't happened, I mean, who knows? McLaren might not have made so many mistakes, but I I, I think everybody in the sport kind of realised that, yeah, that 
that was the, sort of the false start sort of for Ferrari and Schumacher. That was going to be their year. But they went on to win five consecutive championships anyway after that. So just for the sanity of people watching the sport who are not Schumacher fans, it's probably just as well. So that it, it's crazy, of, crazy. They would have had another one. It would have been yeah. That it would have been like such a long period of domination, and it could have been extended by a further year, and it could have been extended by a further year. The other end absolutely. had Schumacher managed to get Alonso. He could have so, so easily had ten. So so easily. So other little things that I did for this show because I didn't really know much about the racing, and I knew you were going to talk about it, Carl. Was I looked at a lot of the stats? So when Schumacher before Silverstone, when Schumacher crashed out. Uh, Hackenham was on 40 points and Schumacher was on 32 points. Hackenham won the season on 76 points. If Schumacher had just had Irvine's results from Silverstone, uh, he'd have beaten Hackenham by four points. Wow, really? Wow. And they were just exactly by, just by matching what Irvine bumbled around and finished doing. Wow, he would have absolutely breezed it then. It would have, it would have looked like probably one of his most dominant championship victories. So, Kyle, thank you so much for doing the research. Um, it's nice to nice to come into a show knowing that there's going to be a large segment that Alex and I don't have to know that much about. So, cheers, <laughs> Kyle. You're you're welcome back anytime. So, cheers. let's do let's do a final wrap up on what to look forward to in the next week. So we've got a couple more launches we mentioned earlier today. We've got um, the Mercedes and the Alpine being launched tomorrow. We've already seen the Alpine in some photos, but we haven't seen the Mercedes at all. Will it have no side pods? Will it have some side pods? Will they have gone for the same philosophy or a similar one to everyone else? I think I'm going to be a little bit worried if I see that the Mercedes comes out and it is sticking with zero pods. Either they've re- they're really confident they've nailed it this time, or we're in for another season where Mercedes are kind of stuck with a concept which is just against the grain of everyone else's. So we'll get to find a bit of that out tomorrow. The thing is, is the way they have been acting in their social media lately tells me there is a buzz and a positivity about this about the team. I think I, there was last year too, though. Yeah, maybe. But the thing is, they know more this season. I don't think they're going to drop zero pod. I they didn't give any indication that dropping that the zero pod was the issue. They talked about all the other things that was potentially the issue with the car, unless they have pulled an absolute bluffing bluff blinder um, mm. for us. On I, I I do but, take that. Go on. But I mean, there's a source. There's a guy on TikTok. He does a lot of um, news sort of headlines and stuff from a darkened bedroom. Um, But he seems to get a lot of information. And when you go back, a lot of it seems to be right, which is he's heard things that Mercedes are potentially struggling. So I think it's going to be either or. They're either going to be up there fighting with Red Bull or they're going to be back in the doldrums again this year. And if the likes of um, McLaren and um, Aston Martin and Alpine have moved forward, they could be an even even a worse battle this year it would be it would be a little bit um painful for them to take i think if they went for another season knowing that they kind of got it wrong from the outset or they had a, a fundamental problem and there must be a reason that basically every other team has gone for a particular philosophy but maybe maybe it could be um 
maybe it could be their silver I'm, bullet I'm, and they could just be the I, best. I'm, I'm sorry. There is, we don't do comments of the week. But if there was, it would be Stuart Neal <laughs> who goes, if they keep doing the old concept, they are doing it on purpose. Yes, I, um, oh, I, I thought that was good too. Thanks, yeah. Stuart. I, I think they're definitely going to keep the same, uh, the same concept. I think they know the concept is is probably the one with the most peak performance and the most on offer. It's just very hard to make work. And I've got to be careful what I say. Again, I spoke to somebody who may or may not have spoken to Lewis last year. And I think their kind of concern was that Red Bull was going to copy their concept because they think they are convinced it is the right concept. So unless I completely eat my words tomorrow, I think it's going to look very similar. And I think they're going to stick with this concept. And knowing Mercedes, I think they are going to make it work. And I think they will be the only team because remember they were the outliers. They were the only team who pioneered the no sort of, sort of the no rake and long wheelbase sort of concept. They were different from most of the grid through this era. Any well, the previous era anyway. So they are used to going and doing their own way. And I don't think they're scared to do that clearly. So yeah, I think they're going to stick with the zero pod and I think they'll make it work this year. Well, we'll find out some of that tomorrow. Um, Final things then. Uh, testing starts 23rd of February, so we've got a couple of weeks yet still to wait until then, um, but we will be covering that in detail on the episodes surrounding the testing. Um, final wrap-up then. Um, for tonight's show, we've probably covered all of the ground that we wanted to, and it's definitely our longest ever show because Kyle just blabbed on for ages, basically, about some old season <laughs> no one cared about. Um, before we go, remember to follow Alex Van Jean on Twitter and TikTok, at Alex Van Jean. Um, that's his handle everywhere. Alex, are you doing anything interesting? If- um, yeah, I'm still trying to do some livery designs for people on iRacing. So if you have an iRacing car that you want a livery done for, I am starting to get good at it. So if you want it done for a, a decent price and a good chat throughout the whole process, um, I'm your man. And if you want to follow Kyle Power, head to Twitter and search for Kyle Power F1. I don't think he's on many other social media channels, but Kyle Power F1 and he will... his his. Twitter timeline's full of insightful comments about Formula One. And obviously follow me at Bradley Philpot on Twitter and subscribe to this YouTube channel. And if you're not watching us on YouTube, thank, thank you if you're listening to the podcast because we kind of prefer the podcast downloads. If you're on Twitter, why are you still on Twitter? Go to YouTube. It's so much better. Um, Alex has another point. Brad, Even though I'm trying you, to, uh, desperately trying to wrap up the I show. I know you are, but are you not going to mention your new venture as well? Um, if you want to learn how to go faster, faster, head to bradphilpot.com forward slash coaching and you can see all the information there. Until we see you next time, remember to keep it full chat. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.